The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Sander Katz. He's also known as Sander Kraut. He is a fermentation revivalist. He's written a number of books on fermentation, and he also uh, came to my hometown in 2019 for the Fermentation Festival. He was in Picton, Ontario, which is uh, very cool. So here's my conversation with Sander Katz. I'm so excited to talk to you. So thank you so much for for allowing me to bring you on my show. You're very famous in the fermentation world. So I think that this is going to be a wonderful episode. Well, wonderful. And so you're in Ontario? I am, yeah. And Bel- I, Belleville, Ontario? Yeah, and I saw that okay, you were I, dro- I drove through there uh, um, last year on my way to Picton from Toronto. To the fermentation festival, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we've actually had uh, Pyramid Ferments on the show. So it would have been Jenna Empey, I think, that... Yeah invited you there. Yeah. And um, they, they recommended you and, and talked about you and stuff. So that's really neat. Yeah. I saw the article in the paper actually uh, about you being here. So very cool. Um, where are you normally in California? No, no. I live in Tennessee. Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So you have a big list of things that you can ferment. So I'm just wondering uh-huh. if you can give us a list of things that you love. So do you, do you make cheese at home? Do you make beer? Do you mostly make sauerkraut? Um, well, I ferment all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, basically, there's nothing we can eat that we couldn't ferment. I, I mean, just, just by definition, if we can digest it, bacteria and yeast can ferment it. So anything can be fermented. And I have experimented really widely. So, I mean, sure, I've made lots of cheese. Sure, I've made some beer. I've made lots of meat. I've made sake. Um, I make miso. I make tempeh. I've gotten really into this method for a short-term ferment of usually pork ribs, but you can do it with any kind of uh, uh, meat um, um, oh, wow. in, with a paste of um, rice and garlic and salt. Um, I have a tongue, a beef tongue pickling in, my, in a brine in my refrigerator. I make tons of sauerkraut and kimchi and experiment with other vegetables. Um, uh, let's see, I make yogurt pretty regularly. Um, wow. uh, you know, kombucha, experimental fermented sodas, uh, country wines with different kinds of fruit, fish sauce. I've been a little bit obsessed with this um, uh, Sichuanese Chinese condiment, dobanjang, which is broad beans like fava beans fermented with chili peppers. I do a lot of experimentation. I work with sourdough. I love to bake bread. Um, uh, You know, part of my sort of, you know, food recycling practice is I make these uh, savory vegetable sourdough pancakes that I can throw, you know, any kind of leftovers into. Uh, You know, my memory was jogged because I have a little bit of leftover oatmeal from breakfast. And so, you know, that's the time for me to start a new batch of sourdough pancakes that I'll, you know, throw other, other leftovers into. But fermentation is really versatile, and that's, you know, part of the appeal of it to me. And, you know, what's kept me interested for such a long time is just realizing that, um, you know, in culinary traditions in every part of the world, you know, people have really, you know, interesting and different kinds of fermented foods and beverages. Mm -hmm. Your house sounds like the house that everyone must love to go to. Because you have so much good food. <laughs> you know, or for some people, it might be their worst nightmare. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, not me. I, I love this stuff. So I have a, a cold storage and I'm, I'm trying to get into it. So it's very cool to talk to you. And I, I might have a couple questions later about why I screwed up my, my pickles. But um, I, I also saw on the list chocolate and coffee. But th- those aren't fermented products, yeah. are they? Yeah, sure. It's just it happens on the, on the, on the harvesting end. So, okay. you know, we, we just don't see it. But, but, but sure, I mean, the first step, um, you know, in the harvesting of both of those things is fermenting them because both of them, the seed that's the food that we eat is embedded in a, in a fruity mash. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's basically easier to let that ferment oh. and decompose and fall away from the seed than to try to mechanically remove it. Mm-hmm. And then the fermentation also is part of the, you know, kind of like biochemical development of the, you know, of the flavor compounds that we love so much. Okay, because I read that you should do that with tomato seeds, too. So instead of like getting the tiny tomato seeds out of tomatoes to save them for next year, you can just like throw them all in a bucket and... Yeah, sure. And, 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 and also, I mean, it really increases their viability because they have some, you know, they have some compounds on them to inhibit germination and uh, the fermentation breaks those compounds down. Fermentation has all kinds of applications, you know, beyond food and beverage applications. Yeah. I mean, you know, lots of fiber arts and, um, you know, dyeing techniques, you know, obviously composting. And, you know, we could say that fermentation is the basis of, um, you know, soil fertility and, you know, techniques to, you know, sort of build or maintain soil fertility, you know, all involve fermentation. Mm-hmm. Have you ever saved seeds that way where you you let things kind of rot out like that? Well, I mean, you know, particularly, you know, tomato seeds, pepper seeds, I, I have. Yeah. Um, you know, mostly I follow the guidance of more experienced people rather than, you know, inventing the wheel. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I've never done that with squash seeds, which are really easy to separate. And I've never seen any suggestion in the literature that there's any benefit to fermenting them. Mm-hmm. You know, you do run the risk if you leave certain seeds in water that they'll start to decompose. Mm-hmm. I've had some survive the winter and then just grow right out of the gourd. It was like a zucchini. and Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the... Uh, their evolutionary path. Like, exactly, you know, they, yeah. they don't want to need you to reproduce. Mm-hmm. Unless we eat them and then, <laughs> and yeah. then they, they come out that way, but we're not really putting them back in nature anymore. So <laughs> that's a, that's a little bit different. You, you mentioned blueberries as well. How do you ferment blueberries and like, what is the product? Is it like a jam? Well, I mean, usually what I do is I make wine. So oh, country yeah. wine. You know, it's a huge, huge, you know, category, you know, but basically any fruit and beyond fruit, you know, I've seen people make country wines with vegetables. I've had tomato wine, chili pepper wine, onion wine, garlic wine. But, you know, country wine Mm -hmm. really just means you make a, a sugar water solution and then you infuse it with, usually I do it with fruit. So blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, some mixture of of fruit, whatever. And then you ferment that sweet infusion of of the berries. I don't even mash them up because I'm not particularly interested in like the, you know, the pectins and the substance of the um, uh, uh, fruit. I just want the essence of the fruit and the sugar of the fruit, which will readily, um, you know, dissolve into water or a sugar water medium is what I do because I want a sweeter product that'll ferment into a significant amount of alcohol. Are you putting in um, like yeast as well, or is that like a natural part of it? Well, uh, no. I mean, I, I mean, sure. I, I mean, if you look in books, I mean, most contemporary books will tell you to, you know, to pitch yeast into it and, you know, maybe to add, uh, you know, a little uh, potassium metabisulfite tablet mm-hmm. to, you know, make sure that you kill all the, you know, native yeast on the blueberry and work with, you know, sort of one selected type of yeast. But, you know, oh. until the time of Pasteur 150 years ago, like yeast did not exist as a separate thing. You know, yeast is on all of the substrates that we can ferment with it. Yeast is on wheat. Yeast is on grapes. You know, I mean, my particular interest in fermentation is, you know, I like, you know, the elegant magic of it. I like the traditions of it. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I mean, I don't judge people who use the more modern techniques. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, that there are some you know, compelling reasons why, you know, people particularly in larger scale production do that. But um, the yeast is on the blueberries. You can see the yeast on blueberries. Uh, any dark fruit, you know, that little, that little white film that you see. That's, that's yeast? yeast. You know, oh my yeast goodness. is everywhere and yeast is finding its way to all the sugary substrates it could ferment. And, you know, if you ever pick a lot of blueberries, you'll find some damaged ones that are already begun, have already begun to ferment. Mm-hmm. In an intact living berry, the yeast on the outside can't access the nutrients that will allow it to um, propagate. But, you know, once a berry gets damaged, it'll just spontaneously begin to ferment because the yeast is there. 
Very cool. So this is a zero waste podcast. So I like to make my own wine. I think it reduces like the bottles that I have to use because I just use my same bottles over and over again with those flip tops. So I don't even have to use corks. And the one thing that bothers me, though, is that in the box, it comes with a couple of those packets. So I'd be really interested to try just doing it like the way you're saying um, with the sugar water and the berries instead of having to use all those packets, right? Yeah. Or I mean, you know, I mean, just the traditional way people, you know, made wine from grapes is, you could see it on I Love Lucy, you know, you just like you mash up the mm-hmm. grapes and the yeast is already on the skin of the grapes. And, and as you mash them up, the yeast comes into contact with the, you know, sugary juice. And, you know, the fermentation is more, is, is spontaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to add chemicals to, or, or, or heat it up to prevent the spontaneous fermentation. Mm-hmm. So what got you interested in doing things the old way? Well, I mean, I, I'll tell you, before I got interested in fermentation, I just was interested in like ideas of like cooking from scratch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, I, you know, it never held any appeal to me to like buy a box of cake mix. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be like, okay, so, you know, how do I make a cake using the you know, ingredients as close to the products of agriculture as, 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 as possible. Totally, and so, yeah. you know, when I got interested, well, I mean, I, so, okay, my gateway into fermentation was sauerkraut. I moved from New York City. I spent, I grew up in New York City. I spent the first 30 years of my life there. And then at age 30, I moved to a community in rural Tennessee and got involved in uh, gardening. And, you know, the first year gardening, we had a really nice bed of cabbage. And I thought to myself, I'd better learn how to make sauerkraut. I knew that sauerkraut was considered a strategy for preserving cabbage. I knew that I loved sauerkraut, Mm -hmm. um, but I'd never made it. And I had no idea what was involved. I looked in the joy of cooking. I found out how simple it was to make sauerkraut. And I've made sauerkraut ever since. And, um, you know, and part of the appeal is the simplicity of the process. I mean, although there certainly are people who will try to sell you a little white powder starter for fermenting vegetables, you know, there's no tradition of that. There's no necessity for that because lactic acid bacteria are present not only on all cabbages, not only on all vegetables, but basically on all plants growing out of soil on planet Earth. They're always there. Um, you don't need to introduce them. And, um, you know, and then I, you know, I got more and more interested in fermentation. I, you know, I started a sourdough and started learning how to bake bread, you know, without adding yeast. And, you know, the idea that the yeast is already there, you just have to cultivate it a little bit to get it vigorous enough to um, rise a loaf of bread. And then when I started reading the hobby literature of making wine and beer, it just was all so complicated. Like you needed so many tools and you had to go to a special store and buy these mm. like chemical tablets, uh, yeah. you know, to kill everything that was on, on the fruit. And then you had to buy special packets of yeast. And in, in my youth, I had had this experience. When I was uh, 23 years old, a friend and I traveled across the Sahara Desert into West Africa. Oh, my goodness. And, um, you know, once we got into West Africa, you know, like all these villages would greet us with their like local uh, uh, fermented beverages. So we, we drank palm wine. We had millet beer. We had date wine. And, you know, as I was reading this hobby literature, I was thinking to myself, like, I wonder how these like tiny remote villages were getting their tablets of potassium metabisulfate. <laughs> and I wonder where they were buying their yeast. Yeah. And so it was just like, a, it was really just a conundrum for me. Um, and then I, at some point I, I, I found this like self-published cookbook by an Ethiopian immigrant to the U.S. And it had um, uh, a recipe for uh, tej, e- Ethiopian style mead. And it was basically mixed honey and water uh, at a ratio of one part honey to four parts water and stir it every day. And it'll just start getting bubbly from the yeast that's in the honey and, uh, you know, ferment it until the bubbling slows down and then drink it and enjoy it. And um, I was like, well, that's a simplicity that I can relate to. And so, you know, I just started playing around with spontaneous fermentation of alcoholic beverages. And realized that, like, if I used a lot of fruit, it would happen really fast because there was such a density of yeast on the fruit. Mm-hmm. 
countrywide, if you, I mean, if you just sort of cover berries with water, you get a really, really weak alcohol because, you know, the, the, I mean, grapes are the ideal medium for fermenting into a strong alcoholic beverage because they, they're, they have so much sugar and they also have a nice level of acidity and tannins, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe discourage a certain level of unwanted bacterial development. But anyway, with most fruit that's not quite as uh, sugary and, and doesn't have juices that flow as freely as grapes, the low-tech way to do it is to put it in a sugar water solution. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, in rural areas of Canada, there are lots, lots of people making country wines because it's essentially like an English tradition that has, uh, you know, transplanted to, you know, all of the English-speaking parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I made some honey, um, honey wine and I put like a bit of yeast in it. Um, yeah, to ferment yeah, yeah. it. But so, I mean, if you use honey, there's no reason to add sugar because honey is, you know, so sugary. sweeter than sugar. Yeah. Um, um, you know, and it ha- and, and it is sugars. But you know, I mean, one thing is honey is expensive. Another thing is mm-hmm. honey has a dark color and an assertive flavor. So, if you're trying to make something that has primarily the bright color of the fruit you're fermenting and where the flavor of the fruit is really the dominant flavor, generally, you know, it's easier to work with sugar than to work with uh, honey. And certainly it's a lot cheaper, but I do both. Yeah. I mean, I make a lot of meads as well. Oh, you do? Yeah. And but- I, I mean, I don't, I don't use, I don't use, yeast. I, you know, I mean, never, maybe my first experiments 25 years ago I did, but, um, you know, I, ha- I never have since then. Wow. But I mean, I meet people who, who, who make beautiful meat. I mean, I, I certainly don't mean to put down, you know, that way of doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I just like the magic of bringing to life the yeast that's already there. Mm-hmm. And you know, with every kind of fermentation, there's more than one way to do it. Mm-hmm. So in the zero waste world, I love fermenting because it's a good way of storing things. And then I can take things directly from my garden and then store it. And I don't have to buy plastic. I don't have to buy packaging. I don't have to buy styrofoam. I don't have to buy all these things or like jars, you know, that I have so many jars now, like I need to slow down on buying new jars because I have so many, right? There's like a threshold of how many jars you can have, I think. Um, so this is why I'm so, so <laughs> well, interested. Yeah, I have a little problem with that. I've got a lot of jars. <laughs> oh my gosh. I bet you have so many jars and bottles and all sorts of things. A big glass collection. I, 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 I think that, I, you know, I think some of my friends would tell you I'm a hoarder. <laughs> of jars. Jars or everything? Yeah, of jars, of jars. (laughs) I mean, and and I have all these people who save certain kinds of jars for me, you know, wide mouth jars, uh, uh, you know, if we're dealing with sauerkraut or other kinds of solid foods, Mm. wide mouth jars are, you know, much easier to deal with than than narrow neck jars. Yeah. So I just posted on my Instagram story, I had some jars break in the freezer, it happens, and I put the level of the broth that I made like really low, because that's a big thing if you're freezing items, you want to make sure that there's lots and lots of expansion room in the glass. And I I always do that. But you know, you just you lose some. Uh, So like I've mentioned, I, I have a cold storage now. So I'm trying to get away from freezing things and more so like preparing things. But I I did make pickles, uh, fermented pickles. I left them on my counter. I don't know if it got too hot, but there was a layer of mold on them after about, I don't know, a week. Um, So I was really disappointed. Yeah, I mean, that's, I I mean, honestly, you know, in my workshops, I always, when that comes up, I always say, how many people in here have ever fermented vegetables? And whatever number of hands go up, go up. How many of you have ever had some funky growth on top of the vegetables? (laughs) The same hands go up. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost inevitable. Well, that makes me um, you know, feel better. You, 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 you hit the nail on the head when you said it was too hot because, you know, in a warmer environment, it'll happen a lot quicker than it will in a cooler environment. Mm-hmm. You know, in a low salt environment, it'll happen much quicker than in a saltier environment. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the only way to prevent it from happening is to protect the surface from oxygen. And, you know, there are various, you know, gadgets and tools and methods that people use to protect the surface from oxygen. But honestly, in most of the traditions, they don't have those kinds of gadgets or tools. And so people just skim any mold that forms off the top. So you can do that? Because I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally harmless. Totally, totally harmless. I mean, 
In China, oh, I, I watched out. the chef of a 500-seat restaurant who took us to his pickle shed, and he wanted to show us his fermenting long beans, but mm-hmm. none of his big, like, 100-liter vessels had labels on them, so he had to open up, um, you know, uh, six or eight uh, um, uh, crocs before he found the one he wanted to show us, and we were videotaping him, and wherever he found, like, a matrix of surface growth, um, he just mixed it back in with zero self-consciousness about the fact that we were videotaping him. So in a, you know, in a culture where like everybody's eating this all the time, he thought absolutely nothing of it. Like there's a kind of a yeast called a calm yeast, which is the most common kind of growth on the surface. Sometimes it could be hairy white mold, but both of these are utterly harmless. I don't want people to imagine that I'm saying all molds are harmless because there can there are molds that can be extremely extremely toxic. Mm-hmm. Generally, they have bright colors. Is black a, a well? Sub- I mean, a when a sign? white mold matures, it becomes black. Oh. Certain black molds can be very dangerous to breathe. Mm, but you yeah. know what I would say is like remove the surface growth, you know, before it develops to that length. Yeah, totally. You know what you're saying about oxygen? So instead of putting the the lid on the jar like the recipe said and then opening it every few days, I actually just put a cloth over it. Yeah, and an elastic. so that meant there was more air circulation. So that's probably where I went wrong. Yeah. Interesting. So I have a weird question for you. You know how you have things that kind of keep you up at night? I don't know if you do, but one of the things that keeps you up at night is like who started the first yogurt culture? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> like where does yogurt culture come from? Well, I would say that's one of those like which came first, the chicken, chicken or, or the, the egg? egg. <laughs> so I, I mean, okay. I, I, first of all, let me say nobody knows. Nobody really <laughs> could say for sure because, um, you, you know, yogurt, like most fermented foods and beverages, really – predates recorded history. It's that old. Yeah. So, you know, there's not a document somewhere saying that, like, you know, this is where yogurt first happened. Mm -hmm. Now, most of what we would call yogurt involves thermophilic bacteria, bacteria that are only active at really high temperatures, generally higher than body temperature. That's why, you know, Mm -hmm. typically you would incubate uh, yogurt um, around, let's see, in Fahrenheit, it's about 110. In um, uh, Celsius, it's probably about 43 degrees. But, you know, you want to maintain a high temperature because that's the temperature at which the bacteria that will make the yogurt thick can, um, can, can function. So I think that we can surmise that it was in a very hot place, you know, probably in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is the epicenter of, of, of yogurt culture. But, you know, I would say that, you know, somebody had a, a happy, spontaneous experience with their milk. But, you know, if you just think about it, like, you know, we who were raised in the age of refrigeration can't even imagine what you would do with milk without a refrigerator. And um, historically, like, fresh milk was just a treat for the people who were milking animals. Like, nobody had an ability to keep milk fresh. And so, you know, what people have been, have been you know, in, in the parts of the world where people have domesticated animals for their milk, what people have been eating are fermented, fermented forms of milk. And there right. is an incredible diversity of fermented forms of milk, but... The most straightforward way to do it is to just leave your raw milk out on the counter. Um, in, in the English language, we have a word clabbered milk, which has become, you know, really um, obsolete. But clabbered milk is just milk that sits on the counter at ambient temperatures. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the first visible stage of transformation is it thickens up a little bit. And then if you let it continue acidifying, eventually it'll curdle and you'll get the fats and solids floating at the top above the whey. But, I mean, you know, how I imagine yogurt evolved is like, you know, on a very hot day somewhere in the eastern Mediterranean, somebody's clabbered milk, you know, just got especially thick and especially tangy and delicious. And, um, you know, over time, people develop techniques for perpetuating that by taking a little bit of the batch they liked so much and reproducing those temperatures. Mm -hmm. You know, cheese was a very important part of building Canada in my area. So when my ancestors came here in 1842, they had cows and they made cheese and there were cheese factories all over the place. And it was... And and uh, cheese is a very practical strategy for, you know, making an otherwise perishable product very, very stable, especially like Mm -hmm. hard cheeses that age for a long time are, are, are extremely stable for a long time. Yeah. So I feel like it was like 
part of our culture of of building and developing Canada and allowing people to survive because they had this source of protein and and nutrients that was fermented and you know before this was way before refrigerators and electricity right so uh we needed ways of doing that and then i think of like mongolia i think it is where they have the that fermented yak's milk like i think they're big in have you ever been there i've never been there but sure i mean i've read about that but i mean yeah. you know most fermentation techniques are born of necessity Mm-hmm. You know, a salami is born of necessity because <laughs> before refrigeration, you know, people would harvest a like a like a pig and, you know, needed to figure out a way to to preserve it because, mm-hmm. you know, a family that's been investing resources in a pig, you know, can't eat it in one sitting. Yeah. Um and they need for that meat to sort of stretch out and be able to feed them over a long period of time. Yeah. And um, you know, just fermentation processes everywhere are born of necessity. And, um, you know, and they've, they've, you know, enabled people to survive in incredibly, you know, varied um, environments. You know, if you look into, you know, how Arctic people, um, you know, whether it's in, um, you know, Yukon or Greenland or Alaska or Siberia, but, you know, very similar set of techniques for, you know, preserving fish and marine mammals and and birds that they're able to, um, you know, access in warm weather. And then use um, um, a variety of fermentation techniques to preserve them to you know, get them through the long, harsh winter. If you look around the tropics, long-term preservation is less of an issue because there's fresh food available all the time. Yeah. But some of the fresh food is toxic, and so a lot of you know fermentation you know has to do with detoxifying food and and breaking down compounds that can um, you know that can make people sick or kill people. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different applications of fermentation, but it's always practical and it's always about, um, you know, enabling people to make effective use of food resources that are available to them. Mm-hmm. So my in-laws are Nishka and Haida, and they live just south of Alaska and they make oolican grease. I don't know if you've heard about that, but there's a spring fish run of these little fish. So they catch them and then they just let them rot in this big giant like container. Like they probably just chipped out a big tree back in the day and then they like squish them all down and it's just like rotting 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 fish and then they take all that rotting fish and like get the grease out and then they spread it on toast and like just eat it on everything it's like this this yellow grease that they love which is kind of a kind of a neat thing um, cool cool I, I i encountered a similar thing it was a different kind of a fish i'm not I'm, the name of it is eluding me at this uh at this moment but when i was in um southeast alaska last year um, oh, it would be the same uh, the, area, the, the, basically. The Tlingit people up there had a like a similar kind of a process where, you know, the oil of a particular fish that had a huge run there, uh, you know, was really like a staple food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and probably very, very um, And, healthy. you know, without chemical extraction or, or high, high pressure, the, it seems like around the world the easiest way to extract an oil from a fish is to allow the fish to ferment and the oil rises to the top. Mm-hmm. Everyone who listens to this podcast loves the environment. That's kind of why why this show exists. And so if we want to get away from fossil fuels, like I'm not saying everything should be fermented or whatever, but it is a viable way of getting rid of your fridge or freezer if that's something you want to do to like reduce your carbon footprint if you have a, a cold storage. Um, or oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the people who I meet um, who live in North America without refrigeration as an intentional act you know, mm-hmm. like they rely heavily on fermented food, Absolutely, um, yeah. you know, as the foods that they can keep around. And I would never tell anybody to eat an all fermented diet because fresh food is really great. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, eating fresh berries and fresh tomatoes and, you know, anything that's fresh is, is really a wonderful thing. And it's not like fermentation, you know, ferment, you know, fermented foods are, are, are superior to, to fresh foods. But, you know, but they're a great way to, um, you know, to preserve food, to make certain kinds of foods, you know, more easily digestible um, and just to create, you know, a more interesting range of, of flavors as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like it, like pickles taste so much different than a cucumber, right? Yeah. Especially for, for kids, you know, if you have picky eaters, maybe they would eat fermented foods more. Um, I, I noticed... I, I can't remember where I read this um, about you that you uh, you were saying like people used to ferment in pottery and we, we can tell that by like ancient 
pottery that we found. Well, people still ferment in pottery. I mean, you know, all around North America, you can find, um, you know, fermentation crocks. You can still buy them new, but, you know, antique stores everywhere are full of fermentation crocks. Oh, cool. And and wood, even. You mentioned... Sure. That, so that's interesting. So do you, do you normally ferment in glass, or do you use a variety of things, or is glass the best for fermenting? No, I wouldn't say... I mean, glass is lovely because you can see through it, but glass is... I mean, if you want to ferment on a small scale, glass is easy, glass is accessible. But no, no, I mean, my larger scale fermentation, I, I do in crocs. I mean, I have, a, I have a collection of crocs up to about a, a, a 10-gallon size. I've fermented in 55-gallon barrels. So, I mean, you know, glass is great. Glazed ceramic is great. You know, wood can be great. Um, honestly, I mean, a lot of people uh, ferment in plastic uh, uh, buckets. You know, mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, you want to make sure they're food grade, but, um, you know, lots and lots of bulk foods are distributed in these sort of five gallon or 20 liter size buckets. And, um, you know, those, those make great fermentation vessels. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to claim any authority on on plastic toxicity. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I mean, if you eat any kind of commercial food, I mean, it's coming through plastic. And, um, you know, we're living in an, in an age of plastic. The material that it's most important to avoid is fermenting in metal. Oh, yeah? And that's not for every single kind of fermented food, but like most fermented foods are acidic. And in many cases, we're using salt to, uh, you know, narrow the range of what can grow and encourage the growth of the acidifying bacteria. And both salts and acids can corrode metal. And although stainless steel theoretically resists corrosion, and it's Mm -hmm. fine to, you know, eat sauerkraut with a fork or serve it in a metal bowl or with metal tongs for, you know, for sitting for weeks or potentially months, um, it can really seriously corrode metal. So I would encourage people to stay away from metal vessels in general. Interesting, because they have that BPA liner on metal cans now, and it's to prevent that interaction of the food or the beverage with the aluminum, um, mm-hmm. that BPA lining. And so I try not to give my kid canned food, but then I've got to do so much more work to have vegetables that are that are processed in the the jars, right? My mom does tomatoes, which is really nice. And then we have like sauces. I can put them in soups. I'm really good at like hiding healthy food in kids' food. <laughs> mm, that's, that's, that's good. <laughs> like kind of um, make you And, you know, I mean, I, I can tomatoes also, but just a perspective on, on canning. I mean, canning is a 200-year-old, 208-year-old technology. The patent was issued in uh, 1812 uh, to Nicolas Appert. And in France, they call it apertization because they remember the name of the man who invented it. So, you know, earlier mm. ways of preserving tomatoes, too, involve fermentation. Mm -hmm. Um, This uh, Italian guy who I corresponded with, you know, sent me his great grandparents, you know, recipe for tomato paste that was, you know, fermented. And then with, you know, kind of a hideous amount of salt, I I called it tomato miso, um, you know, because you just had to use such a small amount and it had such uh, so much flavor, but, you know, such intense saltiness. So you you've written three books. Is that right? Or are there more? Well, um, wild fermentation. Uh huh is the book that I wrote that was published in 2003 and then revised in 2016. And that's like a recipe book, and it's all how-to oriented. My more um, in-depth book about fermentation is The Art of Fermentation. Um, You know, it's also oriented towards, you know, practical how-to, but I got away from the recipe format, and it's really just kind of descriptions and talking about parameters, but it also gets into some microbiology and history and anthropology and, you know, um, um, other perspectives. For some people, maybe it's too much information, but if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a lot of information there. And then in between those two books, I wrote a book that was really inspired by, um, you know, different, different grassroots food activists. I, I met um, on my initial, you know, cross-continent um, book tour when Wild Fermentation came out. And that one's called The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. Um, inside oh, America's yes. underground food movements. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, certainly I get into, you know, food waste and food recycling and people who are, you know, sort of doing grassroots work, trying to, you know, sort of divert food resources from the waste stream and get them to people who, um, you know, really need them. That's really cool. And so I'm sure they're on Amazon and everywhere. If yeah, yeah, they're, they're everywhere. I have a website, wildfermentation.com. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, they're available on my, on my website, but they're also available where, wherever you like to get books. Amazing. And 
I I think that you've been kind of around the world, right? Like I was looking through some of your your media and it, it's crazy. Like you've been featured in, I guess, like the New York Times and pretty much every major publication, basically. And uh, I think you were on a documentary that's on Netflix, but I can't remember the name, but it was a, a food one. Uh, Louisville chef uh, Edward Lee did a, um, um, a Netflix show called uh, Ferment. And I was featured oh, okay. in that one. But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I've, you know, there's a huge interest in fermented foods, you know, everywhere. I'm actually, you know, going at the end of next week, I'm going to New Zealand and Australia and oh, doing, wow. um, you know, a workshop tour down there. I've been, um, you know, I've taught workshops in most of the provinces of Canada and Yay. nearly all the states <laughs> of the U.S. and, uh, you know, all around Europe and a few places in Asia and lots of places in uh, Central and South America. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm very interested in fermentation um, traditions in Africa, but I have not been invited to teach there. But perhaps at some point I'll, I'll get to Africa to do a little bit more learning Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would probably help because, um, you know, some of the places there don't have as many fridges. I mean, that's not, of course, in the cities. I've been to Africa a couple times, and of course, there's major cities that are the same as everywhere. But there were a lot of places where I was where people didn't have the power to have things like refrigerators. And, uh, but it gets yeah, really but of hot course, there. I mean, so. you know, people, people often already have fermentation techniques, like, you know, mm-hmm. people who are living a more subsistence lifestyle you know, where their traditions have been continuous generally have, they generally have methods that they're already working with fermentation. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Is there anything that really stands out to you on your world travels that's just very interesting and cool that you've seen people ferment? Like, is there something that is kind of wild? Well, I mean, at this point, I like, I like nothing makes, you know, nothing feels wild to me just because like, it's, it just seems so obvious to me that people can ferment anything. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, I stayed in a really remote village in China for like four days. And I mean, people there were just fermenting everything. I mean, they were fermenting fish and pork. They were fermenting beans. They were fermenting, you know, different kinds of starchy tubers. They were fermenting rice and making their own alcohol out of it. My general experience is that, you know, sort of the more remote the places I have visited, you know, the more sort of thoroughly integrated, you know, into people's lives fermentation already is. But for most listeners, I mean, really, I would just say, like, starting with fermenting vegetables, like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just incredibly healthy, incredibly delicious, incredibly easy, and Incredibly safe. I mean, actually, in the realm of vegetables, fermentation makes vegetables safer than they are raw. There's no case history of illness or food poisoning from fermented vegetables. Um, You know, as long as you understand the basic process, which is just incredibly simple, it is just intrinsically safe and self-protecting. And, um, you know, for me, it was a great place to start. And, um, you know, I'd really recommend for anybody that it's a great place to start. And especially in the context of, you know, trying to move towards, um, you know, a zero waste or low waste life. It's just like a way to handle, you know, maybe vegetables that are just like past their prime, but you want to make use of them before you have to discard them. Totally. Or if you're growing them your own, right? Like lots of people have balconies or little backyards and gardens, right? So if you have an abundance of, of a crop, you know, you can preserve it and then you can eat them in the winter because um, I don't really go to the grocery store in the summer. Like around this time is when I have to really start going and buying veggies again. But and that's pretty good from Canada. So from basically June till December, I'm pretty self-sufficient. In, in, right. In but me, I've got, I've got I've got like 150 liters of radish kraut in my cellar. Oh, my so, gosh. I mean, it's not like I'm it's not like I'm eating just that. But I do have this, you know, really wonderful vegetable resource for me to mm-hmm. eat and for me to sort of share with all the people that I know and, um, you know, bring to my workshops, et cetera. If I ever came to your house, I would be like, you know how they show kids and they're like skipping through Candyland and like they can eat the gingerbread houses and stuff? Like that's how I'd be at your house. I think I'm like, oh, look at these wonderful things. It'd just be like such a, it's like candy to me. Like I just, I love good food, like good, healthy, nutritious food. And it's been really, really cool to talk to you today about this um, because it's right up my alley. And I, I think it's up the alley of a lot of listeners too, who are trying to reduce their packaging and their waste and uh, eat healthier too, right? Because like you said, a lot of that stuff is made in plastic. We don't really know 
Well, you know, if the chemicals are getting into the food, um, probably BPA is if it's in the container, but it's just like a little bit questionable. So if you get some fresh food and do it yourself, you don't have that question of like what came here before. Oh, the other thing I wanted to just ask you. So botulism is just from boiling, but not boiling it well enough. So botulism has nothing to do with fermentation, right? I mean, certainly it's not even theoretically possible with the fermentation of vegetables. I mean, botulism... So botulism is a toxin created by a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum, which is a very common soil bacteria, and probably most of the vegetables all of us eat in our lives have cells of Clostridium botulinum. But Clostridium botulinum is what's called an obligate anaerobe. It can only function and reproduce in the absolute absence of oxygen, and we don't spend much time in environments like that. And even when we submerge vegetables to protect them from the free flow of oxygen, the water that they're submerged beneath has dissolved oxygen in it. And it's really, it's primarily in the case of canning where we create a vacuum, all of the dissolved oxygen that's in the, that's in the water or the juice is forced out by the, by the pressure cooking. Uh, or, or even just by, just by the boiling, but the potential is that because Clostridium botulinum actually can survive boiling temperatures, you can leave Clostridium botulinum as the sole survivor in a perfect vacuum. It's ideal environment. So that's primarily uh, uh, how we know botulism. Historically, the word botulism comes from the Latin word botulus, which means sausage. And I did mention salamis earlier on, which are a fermented food. But if you stuff a salami tightly enough so that there's no oxygen inside, it is theoretically possible for Clostridium botulinum to develop. And so before, you know, before the invention of canning in 1812, you know, the main way that people knew botulism was through salamis. And today, salami production always involves curing salt sodium nitrite and sodium nitrate. And, uh, you know, the safety reason for using those is they prevent the possibility of botulism. Um, So it really has to do with like, you know, it could get on from someone's hands or from, you know, the garlic or other herbs. No, it's a soil bacteria primarily associated with plants. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about stuffing a casing tightly and creating an anaerobic condition. You know, just to bring things full circle to something I talked about earlier, most of the botulism happening today is actually in, in North America is, is actually in Alaska and northern Canada, where, you know, indigenous people are using their traditional methods for fermenting fish or marine mammals in pits, except that they think that they're improving on their ancestors' methods, which were lining pits with grasses. Mm-hmm. And instead, they use plastic. Oh, no. And so sometimes they create an anaerobic condition that allows some botulism uh, to develop. Wow. So if they just use the grass, then it would breathe better, I guess. Yeah. So, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, there's too much plastic in the world. <laughs> um, so, but, but for fermenting vegetables, you know, or from, for fermenting fruit, any kind of raw plant material, like you just don't have to worry about it. Like we don't spend any time in an anaerobic environment and it's only in an extremely contrived condition that, um, that this can occur. If listeners, they love fermenting, they want to try something, is sauerkraut the easiest thing to start with? Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. So could, could you give us a little like Recipe, yeah, sure. Like, so, I mean, when I say sauerkraut, I mean the dry salting method, and it doesn't have to just be cabbage. You know, you could be pretty much any veggie you like. So um, um, in this method, you, you, you chop or grate or shred the vegetables. You're creating surface area. It doesn't matter if it's extremely fine or if it's coarser, but you, you just need to expose some surface area because you're trying to pull juice out of the vegetables. You want to get the vegetables submerged under their own juices. If you just leave a, a bowl of shredded vegetables, it's not going to turn itself into sauerkraut. It'll grow molds. It'll actually become a whole cloud of mold that could reduce a bowl of vegetables to a little puddle of slime. So what you want to do is you want to create surface area, then lightly salt the vegetables, and then I like to get in there with my hands and squeeze the vegetables. Now, you'll notice I'm not telling people how much salt to use. There's no magic number of how much salt. What I like to do is salt really lightly as I'm shredding the vegetables and then then squeeze them. And then once they start getting juicy and I've been mixing them up together, then I just taste the juice and I just decide if I want to add more salt. You know how, you know, if you want 
to make lentil soup, the recipe never tells you precisely how much salt to use. It always says at the end, salt to taste. Sauerkraut is no different. So, so you shred it, you salt it, you squeeze it to get it juicy, um, you know, mix different vegetables together if you like, um, uh, you know, add seasonings if you like, you know, it could be caraway seeds, it could be garlic, it could be juniper berries, it could be curry seasonings, uh, you can add a little bit of fruit to it if you like. It's incredibly versatile. Um, then once the vegetables are juicy, you stuff them in, and, and, and you're pleased with the saltiness and the seasoning, then you just stuff them into a jar. A liter jar will take a kilo of vegetables to fill up. And you want to try to get the vegetables submerged. Uh, sometimes I'll use like an outer leaf of cabbage with a big spine as like a spring to make sure I hold the veggies under the brine. Other times I might take the end of a carrot or an onion and sort of use that on the top to sort of press everything down and, and keep the veggies submerged. And then... Um, you know, if you seal the jar, you just have to be aware that it's going to produce um, um, pressure and it needs to be off gas. So you need to sort of open it up. So what I like to do is leave it right on the counter. So like each morning when I'm making my coffee, I, um, uh, I'll open it up, release any pressure that's built up, and then I'll use my fingers or a spoon and just press down and make sure the top gets fully submerged and then try to wait three or four days and then just taste it. And, and remember, the acids accumulate over time. And so as more time passes, it'll become more sour. And, um, you know, at least for those of your listeners who have fermentation slowing devices in their kitchens, which is what a refrigerator is, if it reaches a point where they don't want it to continue getting sour, move it into the refrigerator, and that'll just slow it down to an imperceptible rate. Mm -hmm. But... Um, if you can enjoy sour foods, um, um, you know, there's no reason to ever put it in the fridge. You can just keep on enjoying it as it gets more sour. Wow. Do you have a fridge um, The only problems that you might encounter are funky surface growth, yeast or hairy white mold that grows on the surface. If those should occur, remove them um, as soon as you notice them. Uh, and then the other thing is, especially in hot weather, especially if you're using watery vegetables like cucumbers or summer squash, veggies can get really soft and mushy. It's not a safety issue, but like it's very unappealing aesthetically for, for, for many people. So, mm -hmm. you know, in summer heat, you just have to ferment for shorter periods of time. I mean, using fermentation to really preserve food for a long term, it's never the hot summer vegetables in the, in the hot heat of summer. It's always like the cool weather vegetables that you harvest in the fall as vegetables are getting, as, as temperatures are getting cooler that have the potential to be preserved for uh, uh, months and months. And generally, if, really, if you really want to preserve it for months and months, you want to do it in an unheated space, in a cellar or an outbuilding. Why is that? Just, just because, to make sure it doesn't um, get too um, in a warm environment, all those organisms, including the enzymes that will make the veggies really soft, they metabolize faster. Yeah. That's why cabbage is such a classic vegetable to ferment. It's not, it's not ready in the heat of the summer. It's ready, you know, when the temperatures are cooling down. And so it's much easier to preserve it for long periods of time. Oh, I see. Yeah. And uh, just the, the final question, what scientific evidence is there? that it's good for our gut health. So we know that we have colonies of bacteria in our tummies, and we know that fermented food is good for that. Um, is there like some science information you can give us that kind of like backs that up a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, it's complicated. The vast preponderance of, you know, kind of clinical trials demonstrating the effectiveness of like, you know, probiotics, especially in terms of improving our immune function, is based on probiotic capsules, which are generally proprietary strains of bacteria. And that's why people invest in trials for them is because they own the strain. And if they can demonstrate, you know, some sort of therapeutic effectiveness, they derive the benefit of that. Nobody owns sauerkraut. So nobody's really investing in, you know, controlled trials of sauerkraut. Well, I mean, the most interesting study that I've found sort of looking at traditional fermented foods rather than probiotic capsules was done in Spain, where they recruited a group of people who eat a variety of live fermented foods regularly. And then they were looking at immune globulin and a couple of other blood indicators of immune function. 
and they got baseline numbers for everybody who enjoy these varied diets of live fermented things like olives, like raw milk cheeses, like salamis. And then they put everyone on a deprivation diet where they couldn't eat any of these foods. And after a couple of weeks of horrible deprivation, they did more blood work and they found that everybody's levels of these immune indicators had gone down. Oh, wow. And then they put them on, then they allowed them to start eating yogurt. One group had traditional yogurt, another had like a, you know, newfangled probiotic yogurt. And they found that both groups regained approximately equal levels of these immune indicators. But nobody returned to the original levels that they started at until they were allowed to resume their uh, uh, diverse diets that included a variety of different fermented foods. So, Mm -hmm. you know, really in the realm of, you know, probiotic stimulation of, of immunity, Biodiversity is the name of the game, and the more different kinds of bacteria-rich foods you can eat, the better. Mm -hmm. Another thing that the microbiome researchers who I've talked to about this really emphasize is that, you know, prebiotics, um, fibers and other nutrients that are not so easy for us to digest and that feed bacteria along the entire length of the digestive systems may ultimately be more important to our ability to, um, you know, maintain healthy microbiome communities than probiotics eating the bacteria. But it happens that most fermented foods, like the substrates, the food that we're growing the bacteria on, you know, like cabbage, are prebiotics. They're fiber-rich foods that, you know, are able to sustain these fermentation communities and will continue to feed the diverse communities of bacteria in the gut. But, you know, I think that all this news about the microbiome and the growing recognition of how important the bacteria in our intestines are to every aspect of our health, digestion, ability to assimilate nutrients, um, our immune function, um, uh, the regulation of our brain chemistry and our mental health. I mean, almost every aspect of our, of our um, health and well-being we're finding is related to these bacteria and various conditions of modern life, chemicals like antibiotic drugs, antibacterial cleaning products, uh, chlorine in water, you know, are, are basically diminishing biodiversity in the gut. And we need to find strategies to restore and build biodiversity and maintain biodiversity, you know, if we want to, if we want to be healthy. And, you know, I think that fermented foods are a really, really, um, you know, important part of that. I hope that they can reintroduce some things into our gut because I worry that people who have never had fermented foods and people who are on lots of antibiotics or born with C-section or never breastfed, like I think that some of those people would, from my understanding, uh, would lack some different colonies in their stomach. So I hope that maybe fermented foods could reintroduce them because I worry about if they're if those colonies are already extinct, like if we can get them back into people yeah. without like yeah. doing a... Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think that fermented foods are the only or the ultimate answer, but they're an easily accessible answer. There's so much folklore that associates good health with different kinds of fermented foods. You know, there is some new scientific evidence that this is true. And, um, you know, I think people have, have nothing to lose by giving it a try. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Sandra. This has been amazing. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, so thank you so much. Okay. Well, great. Thanks for your interest. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Sandor Katz. He is a fermentation revivalist and you can find his website at wildfermentation.com and you can find a number of his books on Amazon or wherever you get your books as well. Thank you for listening. Did you know you can now find our episodes on YouTube? If you have a YouTube account, please like, subscribe, and comment on there. And if you haven't given us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, please do so. It helps the algorithms push our show up in search results, which means more people will discover the show and more zero-waste solutions will be shared around the world from our amazing guests that we've had on the show. I'm a volunteer at my local college radio station, and I don't make very much money, so if you have a few bucks to spare each month, you can sign up and be a patron on Podbean. There's a little reward button you can click on there. I'm also on Patreon, but I want to keep all my content free for everyone instead of putting it behind a paywall, so... 
You also can donate directly on the show's website, zerowastecountdown.com. We are a registered nonprofit in Canada called the Zero Waste Countdown Initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks to our listeners in America, Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Spain, and wherever else you're tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 